Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you or on your device if you want to turn to Philippians 4, just four verses today. We're not, uh, if you're kind of a type A and you're like, wait, you skipped one through uh, nine. We actually taught on that back in the spring, so we're not going to revisit that. But if you want to go listen to that teaching, uh, we taught on that earlier this spring. And then we mentioned and kind of taught through a little bit of the end of the chapter um, earlier in this series on Philippians. So we're just going to focus in on Philippians 4, 10 through 13. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you remember where we're at in the book of Philippians, this is our last uh, message in this, this teaching here, looking at what it means to be a wholehearted community in the book of Philippians. If you remember, Paul is writing under house arrest for preaching the good news of King Jesus, which at that time in kind of imperial Rome would have been an act of sedition to say Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord would get you thrown in prison. And we believe that Paul is under house arrest here in Rome for preaching this message. And as Paul is kind of uh, mentioning, he is struggling, right? He's struggling financially. He's struggling mentally, spiritually, emotionally. He has been brought into forced poverty and he's, and he's really, um, he's, he's kind of starving. He's really having a hard time in, in, in prison. And he's hoping to be delivered, he says, in chapter one. And all of a sudden, when things seem at their darkest, there's a knock on the, on the door. And a man by the name of Epaphroditus shows up with gifts. Gifts of food, gifts of, of money, possibly. We don't exactly know what all came. But it was some kind of financial gift and possibly some other gifts from Philippi, which is more than 800 miles from Rome. So Paul says to them, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. That mega, I mega rejoice, he says. That now at length, or super rejoice, as we might say, I'm super rejoicing right now, that at last you have revived your concern for me. This word revive is a botanical word. It, it speaks of uh, flowers blooming again in the spring after a long winter. Paul is saying, finally, the darkness and the cold of winter is beginning to pass. And now there's a, a rejuvenation, a reviving of our friendship, our partnership. You didn't have an opportunity for some reason. We don't know why. Either they didn't know about it or they had no financial ability to meet this need. But now they've sent this gift to Paul. And Paul is essentially here ending the letter by just saying, thank you. And it's a weird kind of thank you because Paul says, thank you, but not that I'm speaking and being of need. So he says, thanks, but I didn't need the gift, but thank you anyways. Paul here then brings us into this secret of not needing things that others can provide for us, even legitimate needs. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He goes on to say, again, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need in every circumstance, in any circumstance. I know how to be content. Paul has this inner poise, this inner stability, 
that frankly is annoying to me, right? Like, again, Paul's not the guy you want to grab drinks with, right? Like, he's just annoying in his, this inner stability of the heart that he has, regardless of what happens to me. Paul is unflappable in the midst of chaos and uncertainty and trauma. How do we get to this place of stability with Paul, this inner stability, this inner freedom, this inner poise that is required um, now, no less than then, to live fruitfully in the world. That's what I want to talk about today. And Paul calls it contentment. And the first thing that we see about contentment, this inner freedom, this inner stability of the heart, regardless of the instability we, we experience culturally and socially, Paul says, I can have a place and a posture in my heart that is stable, that's content, that's free. First thing that Paul says, though, is it has to be learned. Contentment must be learned. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. That word secret is this interesting word, mueo, in the Greek. And it's the only time this word is actually used in the Bible. And the word um, essentially refers to the ancient mystery cults of the day, the ancient mystery religions, the Gnostics, from which we get, think of the word gnosis, knowledge, from which we get Gnosticism. There was initiation rites where you would be initiated into secret knowledge. And Paul says, there's a kind of initiation that has to take place. Like, learning contentment is not obvious. It's not inevitable. Despite the fact that as young people, we think we know what contentment's gonna look like. He says it's a secret that has to be learned. You have to be initiated into contentment, baptized through fire oftentimes. I love that Paul says it has to be learned. Like what Paul's saying here is this is not something that just magically happens when you become a Christian. You have to be initiated into it over a long period of time. It's a, pro- it's a progressive thing that takes place over a long period of time. Matter of fact, if you look back at Paul's own autobiography in Romans chapter 7, he says before he was a Christian, one of the very things that brought him to Christ was when he began to realize how covetous he was. So he struggled with uh, contentment, discontentment, you could say, is covetousness in the Bible. That's what it means to be discontent. It's to be covetous. And that's why we have to learn contentment. Paul says, I've struggled with this, but I've learned over time. We have to learn this because our internal default is what? Contentment, right? We grow up being content. No. Our internal default is discontentment. What is discontentment? You could say it's covetousness. That's an old school Bible word. Or maybe you put it like this, it's a restlessness. It's this internal, unquenchable desire for more. It's this internal kind of grasping or, or greed. I have to have more. I, it's just quite, never quite enough. And it's a, it's a posture of the heart more than it is something external. This goes back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve. A thousand yeses in the Garden of Eden. You can do anything, but don't eat of this tree. You have the entire world. God creates Adam and Eve and imprints his glory in them, which makes them kind of restless in a good way for the world. One theologian says we were created with a desire to make love to the world. (laughs) That's what it means to be created in the image of God. They had this robust desire. God says, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, take Eden and extend it out to the rest of the world. So that, that holy discontent is part of the way we're created. It's not bad. To deny that actually puts you in a really bad place. 
But, so God says, there's all these yeses, all these things I want you to do, but don't eat of this tree. And what do they do? They take the one no in the garden and they make it a huge deal. They don't receive the limitations that God places on them and they get restless, discontent, covetous. Uh, I see this, uh, so this is like something that's like default from us from the time that we're kids. Uh, I have four kids, they're all here in the service, and uh, they, sometimes I get to do this with them in the room. But I see this with my kids so much in terms of their restlessness. They come out of the womb just wanting more, right? Wanting more, whatever they have, you know, I don't care how many toys they have, it's, it's never quite enough. And I see this uh, in, in uh, bedtime routines more than anything else. So if you have multiple children, you know that the biggest social justice issue in a home is bedtime. Who gets to go to bed at what time? So we have kids, my youngest is eight, and we have all the way up to 14. And the 14-year-old and the 12-year-old are allowed to go to bed a little bit later than the younger ones. But my, my youngest daughter who's here, who's so passionate about justice, she is, she is so passionate about making sure everything's fair, She's always pointing out, like, why do the older kids get to go to bed 30 minutes after me? That's not fair. To which we respond, you're eight. You don't get to stay up till midnight. To which she responds then, I can't wait till I'm 14. Like, isn't that funny? Like, we all kind of think, like, I can't wait. When I'm 14, then I get to stay up. And, and it becomes like this United Nations debate in our home. There's this restlessness of wanting to be just a little bit ahead, a little bit further along, a little bit older than I am. Because when I get there, then I'll be content. Then I'll have all of my desires satisfied. You see the role that comparison also plays in contentment. There'll always be a 14-year-old in your life Right? There's always going to be somebody a little bit further along, a little, who has a little bit more than you. And you think, if I can just get there, then I'll be content. I mean, this is, this is the game of life in many ways. So our internal default is this sense of discontentment. I don't have enough. And Paul says we have to learn that we actually do. We have all that we need, he's going to go on to say, in the one who strengthens us. But it's something we have to learn. Contentment, secondly, Paul says, is also revealed in our circumstances. The way we learn contentment is actually in our circumstances. It's in our circumstances that we see where we're not content. See, we think that it's through our circumstances we become content. When I get here, then I'll be able to be content. Paul says, actually, no. It's your circumstances that reveal your discontentment. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I've learned the secret. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I know how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul says, I've learned to be content in prosperity. We often don't think of the Apostle Paul as uh, wealthy. We tend to focus on Paul as like a poor tent maker. But actually, he says, I know what it's like to abound. This word abound or plenty means abundance or to be satisfied or to be full. And he's talking about money. I know what it's like. Actually, he was a tent maker, but all evidence in Philippi 
uh, New Testament-wise, supports the fact that he didn't work while he was in Philippi. His needs were completely supplied by benefactors and donors. So Paul wasn't always a tent maker. Paul says, I know what it's like to have a lot, to have material abundance. Now, why, you ask, would you need to find contentment and prosperity? Because again, the, the myth about prosperity is if I can just get a little bit further along, then I'll be content. But just, so, so think about how this plays out in your life. From the time you're little, you're told, or at least you kind of buy into this propaganda, that if you just get to the next season of life, then you'll have enough. That's the myth of prosperity, a little bit more. John Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest uh, you know, businessmen ever in American history, was asked one time, how much money would satisfy you? His response, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. $10,000 more. $20,000 more. And we, and we do that, right? Like a little bit more and I'll be content. You're in high school and it's like, when I get in college, then I'm going to be content. Because I have all this freedom and I can get out from underneath my parents. Then you get to college and you're like, when I graduate and I get my first job, or in many of your cases, when I continue to take on debt after college getting five master's degrees, you know, or whatever, doing all my residency work, then I'll be content. Then I get my first job, that the job's gonna be the thing, and then it's not the job, it's I gotta get promoted. I gotta continue to advance up into management. Then I'll be content. Then, um, you know, when I buy my first home, I hate being a renter. When I buy my home and I have my own place, then I'll be content. When I get married, then I'll be content. Or for many of you, it's you know, when, I, when, I, when I'm able to stay single, then I'll be content. Some of you get married and you're like, no, it's when I'm single again. That's when I'll be content. If we could just have children, then I'll be content. What I really need is some kids to just mix things up a little bit. Then you get kids and you're like, man, if my kids just get a little bit older, like you have little kids and they're driving you nuts in the pandemic and you're like, when they get older and they can just wipe their own bottoms and they can kind of be self-sufficient, then I'll be content. I mean, on and on we go. And the problem is, the myth of prosperity, the problem is once we arrive at whatever we thought the goalpost was, what do we do with the goalpost? Move the goalpost. And it's this constant game of never arriving but always wanting and this plays out in all kinds of ways, like financially, right? Like we do this with money. I remember uh, coming out of college, had a master's degree uh, from seminary, got my first job in ministry. And uh, this might surprise some of you, but I made a, a, all of $1,000 a month in my first job as a, as a high school youth minister. And I remember, but I remember thinking, I'm, I'm rich. This is way better than what I made at California Pete's Kitchen. Emily was making $21,000 as an executive assistant. We were making $33,000 together, and we were so happy. There were so many things that we didn't have to worry about, like buying a house. We couldn't even afford to do that. But we were, just, we were happy. We thought we were making a lot of money. I remember getting my first promotion. I went from 12 to 24, and I'm like, oh, that's it. Like, we could stop right here for the rest of our lives, $24,000. And then... You know, as time went on, as uh, the famous theologian Puff Daddy said, more money, more problems. We started to make more money, started to get, you know, uh, some, uh, some increases. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, more money, more problems, more kids, more desires. Now more things that I want. 
more things I feel like I have to have. And we got to a place where it was like, man, I can't imagine having less than what we had, and it's infinitely more than we had when we were young. The goalposts kept moving. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, what happens um, with, with, with prosperity is it's so hard to be content because we always want more. So some of us swing the opposite way and we think, I know what will fix my discontentment with prosperity is I'll become poor. And people throughout the history of the church, people of privilege especially, have done this. They've taken vows of voluntary poverty. Now, I have no problem with that, but the problem is poverty doesn't solve our contentment issues either. Anybody who thinks poverty is a solution to your contentment issues has never actually been poor. Not in any real meaningful sense. I don't mean like poverty where you still have an airbag and a safety bag and parents who live in Carmel who can still fund your poverty. I mean true poverty. Soul-crushing poverty. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. That's the word for humiliated. It's the same word that he uses in chapter 2 of Jesus, but instead of making himself humble, Jesus makes himself humble. Here the word is passively, I've been humbled. I've been humiliated. I've been brought low. And Paul is writing in a prison cell, locked up under home arrest, as one who's facing this kind of abject poverty. He's been forced into a soul-crushing poverty. He knows hunger. He knows deprivation. Now, let me just clarify here that Paul is not saying here, by being content in poverty, that people trapped in poverty or living below the poverty line should just be happy and accept their lot in life. He isn't saying people can't want more of legitimate needs food, clothing, shelter, all the things that you want for your family if you're not poor. He's not saying people can't work to improve their conditions. Matter of fact, most of his letters in the New Testament talk about remembering the poor, providing for the poor, and advocating on behalf of the poor. There's a holy discontentment that's good, that's godly. And it's not wrong for people who are in poverty to want to be out of poverty. Again, typically the ones who are having a problem with that are those who are benefiting from their poverty. The kind of contentment Paul has in mind here, for, why, why do we need to be poor, uh, content in our poverty if we find ourselves in poverty, is Paul says poverty can steal your joy. He says, I, I've come to this place where I can rejoice in my poverty, in my deprivation, in my lack. I can learn to not have my joy taken from me. To not allow it, see poverty, true poverty, being trapped in a cycle of poverty, crushes the soul, it crushes the spirit. He says, I won't allow it to do that to me. It can't take my soul, it can't have my heart. I'm not gonna allow it to paralyze my ministry. I'm not gonna allow it to ensnare me in bitterness. You can get so bitter when you're poor. My my family and I watched, uh, again, we had this ongoing debate in our household as to whether or not Hamilton or Les Mis is truly kind of like the epic film of our era. 
right? So my kids made the mistake of saying Hamilton was, to which my wife took offense because that Les Mis is her favorite film of all time. So we watched both, one right after another. And I love that, that quote and Jean Valjean's soliloquy right at the beginning in his conversion experience, which seems like his conversion experience in the movie. And, and this, is, this is how it feels when you're trapped in poverty. He says, I come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. If you've ever been on the other side of poverty, you know what that feels like, perhaps. So the, so the answer is not just to become poor. You know, some of us, like our great rebellion against growing up in privilege and growing up with money, say, in, in Hamilton County, I know some of us are, like, ashamed of that. You don't have to be ashamed of that. As we move into the city and we're like, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to take a vow of maybe not poverty, but like bougie urban simplicity. I'm going to replace Market District with Aldi, right? <laughs> but it's another form of bougie caramel, like Hamilton County. It's just you're doing it in Broderpool, doing it in downtown. That doesn't make you righteous. doesn't answer. You can be just as discontent in your simplicity as you are in prosperity. What Paul says is, and what, what, the, what the Proverbs say is, give me neither poverty nor prosperity. Neither one is the answer. You can be content in poverty. You can be content in prosperity. And that poverty and prosperity, by the way, is not just financial. That poverty and prosperity can be relational. Give me neither relational poverty or relational prosperity. I can't handle too much of one or too little of the other. It can be with experiences. It can be with our emotional kind of integrity and health. But Paul says, the thing I want you to hear is that the school of contentment is your circumstances. That is the school. That's how you get your education. Because your circumstances reveal your contentment or your lack thereof. Right? Your circumstances reveal your covetousness. Reveal what the Bible would call your idols. Those things you've given functional trust of your heart to. When you're in plenty and you find yourself still discontent at something you would have been content in five years ago, the invitation is to step back and say, why am I discontent? This is not a money issue. This is a heart issue. That's why in Colossians 3, interesting little throwaway comment here from Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, what I want is not just this thing. I want this thing to save me. I need this thing. I need more so that I can feel like more. I need more so I can feel like more. You see, real contentment, it can handle either prosperity or poverty with a sense of internal ballast or stability or resilience. And, and discontentment can take the face of either not getting what you want and growing restless or growing resentful hating the world because it hated you, or it can take the face of getting what you want and then actually realizing it doesn't satisfy. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. If I just get this relationship and then you get it, which is almost worse than not getting it. Both extreme poverty and extreme prosperity can lead us to despair and disillusionment. The hard part for most of us is we're like in the middle. We're like middle class, and we don't experience either extreme poverty or extreme prosperity and so we tend to kind of continue to think, well, if I just can get a little bit further down the road. And I mean, like, middle, middle class relative to America. Now, 
Let me just say something here before we begin to wrap up. I want to apply this to kind of our present moment because I think it's, it's so prescient to where we are right now. We are in the middle of COVID-19, right? Like a pandemic. And I want to just, I want to set aside the politics for a second. I want to set aside the science for just a second because so much of what's happening is emotional and spiritual. So regardless of what you think about whether this is a real threat or not a real threat or how we should respond, something global is happening around us that has altered our march here in America towards progress and prosperity and freedom. Americans are, for the first time, for many of us in our lifetime, being brought low, as Paul says. The first time in our lifetime we're being faced with a a microbe, a micro-enemy, literally, that can't be rapidly fixed with money, with politics, with technology. We have all of these restrictions and limitations that are being placed on us that fly in the face of, let's call American culture kind of the ultimate discontentment, right? The ultimate propaganda of more, bigger, better, faster, stronger is the way forward. Now, there's some great things about that, and many of us have prospered, including myself, from living in America. Many of us have not. But either way, these restrictions fly in the face of that narrative of up and to the right. Instead of more, bigger, better, faster, stronger, it's now less, smaller, worse, slower, weaker. And we have this kind of visceral emotional response to that, don't we? We're like, ah, I hate that. Everybody kind of hates life right now, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you find yourself. I don't think any of us are going, wow, this is my dream. A year ago when I prayed for the future of America and the church, this is what I hoped we would experience. Oh, man. And I believe that like in the midst of this, here's what's really going on. Here's the spiritual lens that I think we can look at this through. It's not that it's not political, but I think it's deeper than that. It is a spiritual struggle to find contentment. What's being exposed simultaneously for so many of us, probably all of us in different ways, is a discontentment, right? A discontentment. We don't feel this inner spaciousness and freedom. We feel an inner oppression. And this discontentment with all these constraints it, it looks different for different people. We, we have less control than we did maybe a year ago. We have seemingly, for some of us, less personal freedoms than we did. Less financial prosperity. Less mobility. Less ability to travel and have all these experiences. I mean, let's be honest. Just less fun. It's not fun right now. And for some of us, that's, that discontentment leads to denial. It leads to indifference towards the needs of other people and leads us to become, if we're honest, a little bit reckless in how we're living our lives. Because we're just like, forget it, man. If I can't have fun, nobody's going to have fun. For others of us, that discontentment leads us to judging other people. We're constantly scanning social media, policing the internet, trying to figure out who's done what, and then making decisions about where we're going to go on the basis of how we've judged people to be guilty or not guilty in the courtroom of our own hearts. And that leads us to shaming. That leads us to fear. That leads us to anxiety. Bless you. Now the good news is this is nothing new. Right, like plagues have happened to the church before. I was so encouraged reading again Martin Luther's advice during a plague 
from like, you know, 500 years ago. The same thing was ha- happening in Europe during uh, early 16th century plague. And it divided the church in the same way. Like polarization is not new. This discontentment is not new. On the one hand, Luther talks to, and he writes a letter, like an open letter to the city of Wittenberg and to the church in Wittenberg, to the German church. And he says, some of you are sinning because you have all of this fear of dying. You have all of this fear of the disease. You're abandoning your neighbors. You're locking yourself up in your homes. Or many just left the city and fled. He says, don't allow your discontentment to make you afraid. But he also talks about others who were sinning in another kind of way. Listen to what he says. This other group is much too rash and reckless, tempting God and disregarding everything which might counteract death and the plague. They disdain the use of medicines. They do not avoid places and persons infected by the plague, but lightheartedly make sport of it and wish to prove how independent they are. They say this is God's punishment. If he wants to protect them, he can do so without medicine or without carefulness. That is not trusting God, that is tempting God. No, my dear friends, that is no good, he says. Use medicine, take potions which can help you. Fumigate your house, your yard, and the street. Shun persons in places where your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered, and act like a man who wants to help put out the burning city. What else is the epidemic but a fire which instead of consuming wood and straw devours life and body? You ought to think this way, he says, very well. By God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly awful. I don't even know what that means. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid persons and places where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I've done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely, as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. I love that. I mean, that is the words of a man who's found freedom, who understands restrictions and limitations as given by God, but is not afraid to go around them when a person's truly in need to meet their needs. That's kind of a holy discontent or a a, a godly contentment. I'm not afraid to die, and I'm going to serve my neighbors and show up for them, but I'm not also going to be reckless and foolish and try to pretend like nothing's happening. You see, limitations are not always bad. Limitations bring opportunities. They bring opportunities for creativity. Think of an artist. An artist absolutely works within constraints and limitations. You have one canvas, right? You have one, you know, you have a set of brushes. You have one space to operate on. That limitation is also freedom. Good musicians work within the limitations of the laws of music. You have chords. Limitations are not bad. But here's the reality. This is the deeper spiritual thing that we need to see discontentment kills community. Discontentment is a threat to community because if we are discontent, regardless of how you see things politically and scientifically, if you do not recognize your own discontentment, you are going to become preoccupied with your own needs. You are going to become preoccupied with judging and shaming and fear and anxiety or indifference or recklessness or denial. 
and in the end end up harming community because you need the community to be the place that solves those things. Notice Paul just had this freedom to say, I I don't need it, thanks, but I don't need it. He didn't say, finally, where have you guys been for the last couple of years? (laughs) He didn't say, where have you guys been? What's going on? I'm canceling you guys because nobody called me. Nobody texted me. Paul says, hey man, I've learned the secret of being content. So let me just ask you that question. What's being revealed for you in this moment of uncertainty? In this moment of limitation, in this moment of a, let's just call this like a global forced kind of poverty, relational, mental health, spiritual. We have been brought low and it's hard. What's being revealed for you though? Why are you so angry? Why are you so indifferent? Why are you so despairing right now? Is it because you've not learned the secret of contentment? Last thing Paul says, where does it come from? What does contentment look like? Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Probably the most mistranslated, misapplied verse in Scripture. Held up at football games. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Woo! Philippians 4.13. Ironically, the, the big irony about Philippians 4.13, it's one of my favorite verses, but, but um, it's a verse about contentment that's used to fuel more discontentment. Right? If you're in business, we can grow this business. We can do all things through Christ. We can have kids to the glory of God. I mean, it's used as like, I can do anything I want. And and like, we paint that on a blank canvas. That's not what this says. The all things Paul is talking about is, I can endure, I can cope with, I can show up well in all circumstances. Through, or in, the preposition there in the Greek, in or into, doesn't say Christ, it's literally the one who gives me strength. The one who empowers me is the language in the Greek. I can show up and endure anything, prosperity or poverty, through the one who gives me strength. That's what Paul means. This is contentment, and it's different than the contentment of Paul's day. Paul's borrowing a word here, a word, a word here autarkes. It's a compound word, auto, meaning self, and arche, meaning full. This is a word borrowed from the philosophy of Stoicism which was this movement of philosophy that reacted against all the immorality and the excess and the opulence of the Roman Empire by teaching internal contentment, right? Detach from your desire. Don't have desires. Find the strength inside of you to live the virtuous life. Contentment was a virtue for the Stoics. Socrates taught it. Seneca taught it. This would later become Eastern Buddhism's detached from your desire or modern kind of bohemian culture, best seen in movies like Star Wars. Luke's problem is he desires too much, Yoda says. He's, he would, Yoda would say that differently. Desire too much, you do. Paul borrows this language and redeems it. And Paul says, you've got to learn to be self-full. Not full of yourself, but full by yourself. Full by yourself. In other words, Paul doesn't say detach from your desire, deny your desire, and practice this cold, hard self-sufficiency. What Paul says is, you've got to learn to detach from your desire to desire. You've got to learn to detach from the addiction, the attachment, your preoccupation with. 
your unyielding attachment to this thing, whatever this thing is for you, as a part of your identity and as part of your salvation schema. If I don't have this, then I'm not really alive. That's identity language. That's salvation language. Paul says, let go of your idolatry. Detach yourself from needing this to make you whole. And then what's he say? Plunge all of that desire into Jesus. That's true contentment. Take all of that desire. Don't kill your desire. Don't detach from your desire. See your desire. Point it to Christ and find it fulfilled only in him. He's pointing us here, juxtaposing self-sufficiency or willpower with Christ's sufficiency. You only find desire filled as you learn to be filled with the presence and the love of God. If you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Jesus says, then you're free not to love anything else like that, not to need anything else like that. You don't need to love with that kind of intensity, your prosperity, or be feeling bad when you don't get there in your poverty. If you love anything else with that intensity, you will eventually get disillusioned and despairing or codependent. So contentment for Paul, we're done. Contentment for Paul is this inner simplicity. It's this inner, Richard Foster calls it an inner simplicity. My definition is this, an internal freedom that comes from practicing the loving presence of God. Practicing the loving presence of God to the degree that you're able to see your discontentment in your circumstances and say, I've been putting too much weight on this person, this relationship, this thing, this situation, this promotion, getting out of COVID, whatever it is. I've been putting all my weight there instead of in Jesus. You can recognize that and redirect that and say, no, I can do all things through him who finds, who gives me strength. I just want to give you a simple exercise this week. Dallas Willard was asked the question, the great Christian philosopher, discipleship guru, How do we find joy in the Christian life? How do we live like Paul? Here was his answer. You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Arrange your days. See, we structure and arrange our days around our discontentments because they start the moment we wake up and they don't stop until the moment we go to sleep. That is the default mode of the human heart. More, more more. Dallas Woods says, no, you've got to learn to arrange your life around contentment. Contentment comes from the outside, and it comes through Jesus. It comes through recognize I am a beloved son or daughter of the king. Jesus came. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me to give me all the glory, all the desire, all of the love that I'm seeking in other places. And so I've got to start trusting him distrusting myself, distrusting anything else to bring about my joy, and trust God in the way that I have found to be most helpful to just weave that into the fabric of your life. Just Ephesians chapter 3. I just want to challenge you this week. Take Ephesians chapter 3. Wake up in the morning, and before you get on your phone, before you do anything else that's going to stir up your discontentment, before you look at one social media image, and do this again before you go to bed, after you've done all of your comparing and doing all the things we do online and and evaluating your day. Make this the last thing you do before you go to bed tonight. Take Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. And I just want you to like steep in this like a bag of tea. Just let this fill your mind, your heart, your body, your imagination. The love of God, union with God, communion with God 
If this is true, and if this becomes increasingly true, it will allow you to arrange your day in such a way you are experiencing more joy, contentment, freedom internally. Here's what Paul writes. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Let's just do this, and we'll close in prayer. Let's just do this. Put down your stuff. I just want you to hear these words, and let's just breathe these in as life here today. Hear these words. I'm going to read them over you. And I want you just to imagine as you hear these words that this is most true of you. This is the most true thing about you. This is actually true spiritually, mentally, emotionally. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every heaven, family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, in the core. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through trust. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, in the midst of COVID-19, you're loved. You're rooted and tethered to the God of the universe who loves you. In the midst of your unstable marriage, in the midst of your shaky relationships through friends group because nobody can agree on anything right now, in the midst of whatever's gonna happen this week in the election, you are rooted and grounded in the loving presence of God. You, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled, that's contentment, filled with all the fullness of God. When you are full of God, you are emptied out with everything else. To be filled with the fullness is love. That is what God has for us in Christ Jesus. That is what it means to live, to discover the secret of contentment. Man, those treasures are one day in and day out as we seek to arrange our lives. Prayer, meditation, scripture, silence, solitude, Sabbath, We immerse ourselves in that reality and we learn the secret of contentment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this invitation to fullness of life in you, with you, for you. God, our hearts are so discontent. Our hearts, as Augustine said, are restless until they find rest in you. God, help us to rest in you and your love for us and your loving presence. Help us to take that in this week to our core. Let it fill our minds. Let it literally fill our bodies. Rewire the circuitry of our brains. Come into our imagination and give us a different perspective of our past, our present, and our future so that we, might, we with Paul might be able to say, hey, thank you, you know, friends. Thank you, family. Thank you, world, for what you offer but I don't need it. I'm content. I've learned in every circumstance, in any circumstance, the secret of contentment. Whether I have much and I'm prosperous or I have little and I'm poor, I can do all things. I'm able to come up under all things through the one 
who strengthens me. God, make that true of us as a community. Right now, may we see the struggles, may we see the pain as an invitation to find more contentment in you. Not to rage against or resist what you're doing, but to simply surrender to what you want to do in our lives spiritually right now in this moment. And may that make us as a community full of the love of Christ. And God, may that fill our hearts with compassion and mercy and love for one another so that we don't need things from one another in the truest sense of the word, but we can show up at community with generous hearts. We can be unified in the midst of division. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.